It's amazing how holding a book in your hands can unlock a memory. Take this week's book, for example. When my guests told me that they wanted to read Francesca Leah Block's I Was a Teenage Fairy, I was almost positive I'd never read it, until my copy arrived in the mail. As soon as I saw it and started paging through it, I knew I had picked it up as a kid, probably shortly after it was published. It was a cool, weird feeling, and yet another testament to the power of books. But here's the thing. Once I started actually reading I Was a Teenage Fairy, I couldn't believe how complex it was, and I knew without a doubt that I had missed much of it when I was a kid. This novel explores heavy, deeply emotional subject matter that surely went over my head on the first read. At this point, I'm going to offer a trigger warning, as this episode, like the book itself, discusses matters of child sexual abuse and trauma. Please listen with caution. In I Was a Teenage Fairy, we meet Barbie, a California girl whose mom really wants her to become a model. Barbie is not so into this idea, and when she is molested by a famous photographer named Hamilton Waverly, she understandably becomes even more reluctant. The only good news is that she has a special friend named Mab, a tiny fairy who has all the confidence that Barbie lacks. Mab can also be a little toxic and rude, not to mention incredibly big on sex jokes. But Barbie still treasures their friendship. Over the course of I Was a Teenage Fairy, we watch Barbie grow up, get into a relationship with a dreamboat named Todd, pursue justice against Hamilton Waverly, and become the Manhattan photographer she always wanted to be. We, of course, talk about all of this on today's episode. We also chat about what Mab represents, fat phobia, masculinity, and the discomfort we experienced with some of the points of view in this book. Plus, we can't possibly cover a work by Francesca Leah Block without diving into her incredible writing and fairy tale magic. My guests today have been at the top of my list of favorite podcasters and content creators for years now. And while I was lucky enough to have them each on the show individually early in the life of SSR, I am thrilled to have them on episode 181 together. Emma Gray is the co-host of the Love to See It podcast, an MSNBC columnist, and the author of A Girl's Guide to Joining the Resistance. Her work, which focuses on gender, culture, and politics, can also be found in Cosmopolitan, The Washington Post, Nylon, HuffPost, and in the culture newsletter Rich Text, which she co-authors with Claire Fallon, my other guest. Claire also co-hosts the Love to See It podcast and is a books and culture writer. Previously a staff writer at HuffPost, her work can also be found in Vice and Cosmopolitan. Follow Emma on Twitter and Instagram at EmmaLadyRose and Claire on Twitter and Instagram at Claire E. Fallon. Check out their podcast wherever you listen to your favorite shows and follow on Instagram at Claire and Emma Pod or on Twitter at Love to See It Pod. Personally, I'm a huge fan. If you are a fan of what you hear today, don't miss out on all of the good stuff that's coming up. SSR is at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast community. Show a little love for the podcast with a five-star rating or review or by sharing it on social media. It would also mean so much to me if you would consider joining the SSR Patreon community. For those who don't know, Patreon is a platform that connects independent creators like me with people who enjoy the things they create. As an indie podcaster, I don't receive funding from a larger organization, so the contributions that come through Patreon supporters have been largely responsible for the growth of the show over the last few years. I am so grateful for all of my patrons. If you would like to support the show for as little as $1 per month, visit www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. 
you get lots of fun exclusive rewards, including membership in our SWR Shit We Read Patreon book club. In March, we are reading Sex Cult Nun by Faith Jones. I hope to see you there. You can read Sex Cult Nun or anything else on your TBR really with a little help from my favorite audiobook platform, Libro FM. When you shop with Libro FM, you're supporting independent bookstores instead of a giant company. The audiobooks you get from Libro FM are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSR podcast when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is shit she read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Emma. Hi, Claire. Welcome back to SSR. We are so excited to be here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's such a treat to have you on together. So listeners, I don't know if you know this, but I have had the pleasure of talking to both Emma and Claire individually. Feels like a million years ago. I think it was 2019, but really who can say? Anything pre-2020 is like another lifetime. So I remember being in an office when I recorded it. So it was a long time ago. (laughs) It was the before times, certainly, and we talked about very different books back then um, compared to what we're talking about now. Emma and I talked to Judy Bloom, which is always fun, and then Claire and I talked about Alana, the Alana series, which I was unfamiliar with. Today, we are talking about a book by Francesca Leah Block called I Was a Teenage Fairy, and we spoke about this briefly before we started recording Emma and Claire, but we are going to add an additional trigger warning right now, um, add that on to the trigger warning that you already heard in the intro, listeners. This is some heavy subject matter in this book, many, many references to sexual assault. And so if you don't feel that you are in a place to listen to this right now, I would encourage you to maybe just come visit us next week on SSR. I don't think that there's going to be a lot of moments of this podcast that aren't sort of at least tinged with that subject matter. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, it's very, it's pretty pervasive. Yeah, it's definitely central. Pretty central. Um, But I want to hear about your experiences with this book. I had a couple of revelations about my own childhood experience with this book once I started reading, but I'd love to hear about yours first. You suggested the book to me. It's not one that I had thought about in a long time. So Emma, do you want to start and then we can throw it to Claire? Yeah, this is definitely a book that was my idea because it was one of my favorites when I was a kid, which I don't know. Upon revisiting, I'm like, what does this say about me (laughs) that this was my favorite book? But I literally still have my original copy from 2000. Oh, my heart. Um, It's one of the few (laughs) books that I like had brought into my adult life and not just left at my parents' house. I was a big fan of Francesca Leah Block and her sort of fanciful language. And I think there was something about the book that as a young person, like feeling like you were 
mature and smart enough to deal with such heavy subject matter, I think made me feel grown in a way. And that's probably part of why I I loved it so much. That and all of the descriptions of New York City and Los Angeles as women. (laughs) And the San Fernando Valley. Yes, right, definitely. Yes. All and sisters. The, <laughs> the teeny bopper sister. Yes. Yeah, so I didn't read I Was a Teenage Fairy as a kid. I had never read it until Emma suggested it. I missed the entire Francesca Leah Block oeuvre and like moment somehow. And so I didn't read Wheatsy Bat. I didn't read any of those books. And Emma and I realized that we looked through your catalog and we couldn't think of any book we had both read as kids that That you you hadn't hadn't done yet because you've been so thorough. (laughs) And so I was like, this is my moment to read some Francesca Leah Block. And coming to it as an adult, I have to say was bizarre. I was like, I just know I would have encountered this so differently if I were 12, but I, it's so hard to put myself back in this headspace. And so for the first time in a long time, I was reading something that was geared at like tweens of the late 90s, early aughts as an adult. And it's a very unnerving and interesting experience. I was like really taken. It wasn't what I was expecting, I guess. And so I have a lot of like, I don't know, like regret, I guess, that I didn't read it. I'm like, I wish that I had that to look back on, but I'm excited to talk about it today. Yeah. So I, when you suggested it to me, I was like, oh, I don't, I think I remember this title, but I'm not sure. I obviously knew Francesca Leah Block because we have done one of her books in the past. There's an episode about Wheatsy Bat, which I'll link in the show notes for this episode. And I had never read that book before. But I was like, okay, I think I know this title. And I ordered my copy. And once it arrived and I saw the cover, I was like, oh, I had this very visceral memory of the cover and the size because it's a unique trim size. It's like a small little book and has these, has like a very distinct, almost like page layout. The margins are really wide. And so I realized then that I had read it when I was a kid, but I couldn't really remember when or if it had been significant to me. And then I started reading it and I realized it it all just sort of came back to me that like, I think I maybe read it right after it came out in 2000 when I was 10. And I am almost positive that I picked up the book just thinking it was about literal fairies, like only about fairies, just about (laughs) teenage fairies, like real fairies. I cannot emphasize this enough. And that I probably missed like 90 to 95% of what was really going on in the book. Because like Emma said, like I was so taken with the language. I thought it was so beautiful. I was a kid that dreamed of living in New York City for as long as I could remember. That was magical to me. And I was a kid that was privileged not to have to face a lot of the things that the main character in this book faces. So I didn't pick up on so much of what's going on sort of below the surface of this book. And so I think I probably just absorbed it as this book about this like kind of quirky teenager who had some like dark things going on and had like a little fairy friend. And so I think I in some ways had a similar experience that Claire described because I started reading it again. And I was like, wait, I'm confused. (laughs) Like, this is not what I remember. Like the cover brought back so many memories. But this is I don't think this is the same book. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, a lot of the references are so sort of oblique. And I think at 10, like between 10 and 12 is when you start to sort of pick up on a lot of those things. And so I can imagine the experience of you being 10 and me being 12 was actually quite different 
even as an adult, I got like worryingly far into the book before I was totally sure what was going on. I was like, <laughs> I should have figured this out by now. Yeah. On like, like halfway through the book, uh, yeah. when she starts dropping the really clear references to what's going on. Yeah, I think I have a couple of like stars in the margins in the first 20 or so pages where I'm like, I think this is, there's an implication here. There's an implication here. And then yeah, you get into it. And you're like, Oh, no, this is very, it's becoming very obvious. So let's talk about our main character, Barbie. Um, When we meet her, she is 11 years old. And she has a mother who really, really wants her to be a model. We learn later on in the book that her mom had some version of a modeling career that like failed or floundered. She was also into pageants. And this is a story that I feel like we've seen and read hundreds of times, like the mom whose life didn't go exactly the way she wanted it to and projects all of those hopes and dreams onto her daughter. But Barbie like really isn't interested in it. her her self esteem actually like doesn't really match up with what everybody seems to say that she is like, like there's a moment where she describes her friend Mab, where she's like, Mab is the superstar, like, I'm not as pretty as Mab. And to me, she felt like she was just kind of getting like lost in this world with her mother. And as I was reflecting on the book, and I wonder what you would say about this, like, I realized that I didn't know that much about Barbie as a person, like beyond the fact that she's getting caught up in her mom's dreams for her, and beyond the trauma that she endures. When I was thinking about her as like an 11 year old kid, I feel like I don't really know her very well. Yeah, it's true. I But I, what's interesting about that to me is I was reading it and I was like, Barbie is such a cipher. Her main sort of quality that doesn't seem to be directly derived from just a trauma reaction is that she wants to be a photographer and she wants to be the, she has even as a kid, this sort of nascent sense that she wants to be the subject and not the object. She wants to make the art and have a muse and not be the muse. But she it's very like lightly sketched. And I, to myself was like, well, maybe that's just a quality of YA, I think, and middle grade fiction often is that they leave a lot of empty space for a young reader to like, kind of inhabit the text and inhabit Barbie. But maybe I don't know, you read probably more frequently uh, YA than I do. So if it stood out even to you, then then maybe she's, uh, this is exceptional. Yeah, yeah, I read more YA than I would like to admit. But um, <laughs> yes, I would, I would say that it is, it felt a little bit, it felt more removed from like a real person than a lot of the YA that I read, even throwback YA. Yeah, I don't know that she does quite feel like a fully fleshed human being. And it's hard to tell whether that's in part by design because the character is in so many ways defined by the desires and ambitions of the people that are around her. Like her sense of self is almost intentionally unformed, especially in that first half. And that seems to be kind of the journey that we're on with her. Like you don't really get a sense of her being that fully formed human being until perhaps the last few pages. And we can imagine that her sense of self exists in a more um, sturdy way, like after the story ends. Yeah, that's true. It sort of catches up with her over time. There's this sense of of this book playing at like a fairy tale construction, I think at the beginning, which is interesting. And I think probably what I loved about it when I was 10 years old, it felt like this like fairy tale that I was allowed to read as a 10 year old that didn't make me babyish. And I think when you think about fairy tales, like those characters aren't fully formed in the way that we would expect like a fiction character to be fully formed. They're sort of outlines or 
archetypes. And that's sort of what Barbie is early on. Yeah, that's actually what's going to be the next thing I wanted to say is like, it does feel like a fairy tale, right? It's about the atmosphere and the magic. And also the heroine who you don't know much about her interiority or her personality, maybe, but you know that she's really beautiful, even though not everyone recognizes it. And you know that there's something special about her, even if it's not really clear why. And that's exactly what Barbie and her whole, like, her, the whole, like, world that Francesca Leah Block makes for her. That's what that evokes. Yes, I would agree with all of that. And and then there's Mab. We have to talk about Mab. We can't we can't really get much further into this conversation without discussing Mab, who I think by design throughout the book is painted as this sort of unclear presence in Barbie's life. She's clear to Barbie in that Barbie realizes that like Mab is a fixture. Um early on, Barbie even reflects the fact that like, oh, the fact that Mab doesn't sort of follow me wherever I go and remains fixed to my home must mean that she's real because if she was a figment of my imagination, she would be with me all the time. Like Barbie is is going through all of these mental machinations to figure out like how real Mab is. And she's she's a teenage fairy. Mab is the teenage fairy. She's this like tiny little pixie kind of girl who has become a confidant for Barbie. And it's unclear to readers whether or not Mab is real in this universe, like in every other way, this universe seems to be much like our own. It feels very real and and dark as we find. Like this is certainly not a fairy tale universe or one where you would expect magical creatures to exist. What were your first impressions of Mab? Like as adults coming to this book, what did you think Mab was or, or what did you think she might represent early on? Mab is like all id. Yeah. She's like all the things that a teenager might think in their sassiest moments or in their darkest moments and all the things that you as a young girl might wish that you could say and push back on. And she's she's like confidence inhabited in this tiny little fairy. And something I do enjoy is that the book leaves somewhat open to interpretation for most of it, whether she is an actual creature or whether she is a feeling or an innocence that maybe is is lost in in characters over time but i i don't know i love i love mab i think especially it's so hard for me to fully put myself into this as an adult because it is a book that meant so much to me as a kid and i think as a kid who wasn't all that confident in herself or her beauty or her perspective on the world, there was something very satisfying about reading about this character who just said everything and did everything that she wanted to do. Yeah, I definitely, it took me a while to figure out what she was supposed to represent in a certain sense, but I just kind of thought Mab was a dick. Like, I don't know, like... She's kind of a dick. Like I I was looking at Barbie, this like vulnerable girl. And I was like, her best friend is this imaginary fairy who's like, you're huge and ugly and you look like a pigeon. And like, I'm the hot one and your mom sucks. And, you know, I didn't really, I guess, like grasp the appeal. But I think as you talk about it, Emma, that's the kind of friendship that a lot of us do gravitate towards as kids, especially when we come from, if we, if, you know, if we're a child coming from a, a home where the emotional tenor is hostile or from trauma the way that Barbie does and 
you know, both things. Like she has a tough relationship with her parents and she has this additional trauma, but it's a, I think it can be a way of sort of, you know, those are the responses that you know. And so a friend who treats you that way feels familiar and comfortable. Um, a friend who like insults you <laughs> and is, you know, kind of cruel, but also she can be on your side. She can turn it against your mother who you don't feel safe criticizing, but you have a lot of anger towards. And Mab does that for Barbie. And also just allows her to feel a sense of like belonging with someone cool. She's like, I'm finally, she makes fun of me. She insults me, but I'm accepted by her. And she's the coolest person I know. And so she is kind of like an imaginary version of like getting to, you know, be the sidekick of like the queen bee at mm. school. And there is something really like comforting and safe about that, even while I can look at it as an adult and be like, that looks like a nightmare. <laughs> Yeah, she like ghosts Barbie, like she disappears for days on end when Barbie's trying to do nice things for her. I think Mab is the kind of friend who you are so lucky to have on your side because nobody will kind of like go harder for you, but you really don't want to have turn against you. And we see kind of both sides of that throughout the book. Yeah, yeah. exactly. If she, if she ices you out, you're screwed. Like emotional devastation. <laughs> emotional devastation. But Barbie also seems to sense that like if Mab really knew what was going on out in the sort of grown-up world, she could potentially be the one to defend Barbie. And this is where things sort of have their first major turning point in the book and where things begin to turn dark. Um, so Barbie is invited to do this big photo shoot with a famous photographer named Hamilton Waverly. Uh, whose name now just kind of makes me feel <laughs> creeped out. And at this point in the story, it's it's pretty much implied what happens once she goes into his studio. We don't get a lot of details. As the book goes on, we learn a little bit more about the kind of grooming that goes on when they're alone. But it is just, it's more, I think, a tone or a feeling than anything else that we get through the prose that Hamilton makes Barbie feel extremely uncomfortable. They have these conversations about Barbie wanting to try to use the camera herself. And it's very clear that he wants to be the subject while Barbie remains the object. And there's just something very icky about him from kind of the first moment. But as Barbie is reflecting on this, she has a moment where she's like, if Mab knew, like none of this would have happened to me. And I think this is where like, there's this moment of innocence that's lost. And I actually wanted to read this one quote um, from the first part of the book because it is split into two halves. And toward the end of the first part, there's a section that reads, suddenly Mab understood. She really should have known before she told herself. She should have seen it coming, but as sophisticated as she was in the world of ladybugs and butterflies and crickets, a diva, a princess, an ambassadrix of cool, she still hadn't really learned that much about the big world, even with all the Vogue and Vanity Fair and New York Times articles Barbie got for her to read. It was really an uglier place than she would have liked to believe. It had no respect for its smallest and most delicate members. It would let them starve like the children in the back pages with pot bellies and empty soup pot eyes. It would let them be touched in ways that no one should be touched and broken like wishbones and tossed in the trash. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is where Mab begins to reckon with not only what's going on with Barbie, but sort of 
what's happening in the bigger world. And I think like Claire said, Mab is a little bit of a dick in that she is very wrapped up in like what feels good to Mab in the moment. Like it's very much about what Mab wants to do, where Mab wants to go. Oh, I'm mad at Barbie. Like, let me just leave for a few days. And it's almost like in having this realization about what's happening to Barbie, we're, we're seeing the world through her eyes kind of come crashing down and like losing that innocence that typified her for the first half of the book. Yeah, it's true. And I think that the interesting thing about Mab and why she's so important to Barbie is that she loses her innocence and she finds herself eventually in vulnerable situations and scary situations, but she doesn't lose that confidence that was sort of fueled by her innocence. Like it was at first, it was like, she thinks she can do whatever and say whatever, because she doesn't know what can happen. And she goes through a growing up process where she kind of learns that the world is dangerous and scary and that, you know, girls and small people (laughs) are vulnerable um, in many ways. And she doesn't let it kind of affect her attitude. Um, She still can be Barbie's tougher, you know, more confident friend, more invested in what she wants and making things happen for herself. Whereas we see that Barbie struggles to not be sort of passive and let other confident dick people sort of move her around and do what they want with her. If Barbie is someone who fundamentally projects a lot of her own self-loathing like inward and a lot of her anger at the world inward and Mab is someone who is able to get angry in almost a more productive way like she can channel that that anger and that frustration at the fundamental unfairness and ugliness that exists in the world and she can channel it at the correct targets you know at the the people that hold power and wield it for ill and I think that is the thing that is so intoxicating for for Barbie to be around because she has such a hard time doing that. Yeah. And I think one of the ways we really see that, and it's, I don't think it's the most profound way, but it's, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the fact that like so much of this book for me was about Barbie developing a safe, healthy relationship with her body and with being in intimate relationships with other people, specifically in her case, men, after the trauma that she's experienced. And so I think for a lot of this book, sex feels very unsafe and touching feels very unsafe. And at the same time, Mab is this like hyper-sexualized little creature who like can't help but make sex jokes. And there's this contrast. The fairy ever. She's so <laughs> horny. And there's this weird contrast that I was experiencing as a reader where I was like, I feel weird laughing at her jokes and like being in on the joke with her because at the same time, I'm like mourning Barbie's loss of confidence in her sexuality. And I, I just like wasn't sure how to feel about it. But I think maybe it speaks to what you're saying about the fact that like Mab is able to harness this power and maybe to regain some of the power that Barbie feels that she's lost. And she's able to take that back and like turn it into a dirty joke. Yeah, that is that is the power of Mab. And I think it's also, I. it's interesting how one of Mab's qualities is that she does seem sort of very horny while also being sort of sexually unavailable in the sense that she's literally too small for people to see or know yeah. how to have sex with. So like- <laughs> We have these scenes where she's, you know, 
interested in a human guy and he like can't see her or he's sort of like is that a flicker of light and we see actually barbie kind of in the wake of what happens to her thinking about size as a way of evading attention she tries to lose weight and she's like oh no they pay even more attention to me now and i can't gain weight because it just i just can't and but that is something that like we see mab is successfully too small to be kind of a target and like i do think that is in a way uh, also a trope of certain characters who are overtly overtly sexual in proportion to how sexually unavailable they seem i think we also see this with like the really sexualized fat woman character because Mm -hmm. you know that is perceived as someone that maybe wouldn't be expected to be pursued by a lot of men and so you know there there's a way that that's played with a little bit i Mm -hmm. think that because mab is not really actually out there at these parties in a way where men can see her that she's able to be really openly horny and not have it become an issue for her in the text. I don't know if I'm, I'm just like, now I'm just like bouncing around different ideas, but. No, that's such a good point. And I had never thought about that, but it is like her desire is larger than she exists in the world. And like, that's what makes her able to play with that sexuality with such abandon because yeah. And and she is, She's vulnerable in different ways than Barbie, but like in terms of sexual vulnerability and danger, she doesn't experience it the same way that that Barbie does. And I was really I was really struck with the way that the novel talks about size. I think in a way that I it didn't land for me when I first read it as a kid, and there does seem to be this fundamental fear of being large in it that I think is perhaps in part a reflection of the sensibilities of the late nineties and early aughts that there was like in such, it was such a period of intense body anxiety and very extreme thinness. And it, that felt very, very present in the book. Um, And I don't, it, it was weird to me that I didn't recognize that when I was a kid. Yeah, there's even this running theme of Barbie being afraid of the giants and it's Mm. capitalized like it's a proper noun and she doesn't want to be like them and like be big and bloated and huge and scary. And it's never really explained in a way that I understood what that's in reference to or who the giants are. It's almost just like a specter of fatness that kind of looms over it that she is just constantly terrified by like the concept of being large. Yeah, I was reading the giants sort of refrain throughout the book as one of the fairy tale elements, like thinking about the way she's perceiving the world as a child, that these people that are bigger than life are dangerous in the way that a fairy tale giant might be. But to this point, I actually will will note that I found an essay in the Paris Review as I was preparing for our interview today that was written by a writer who loved Francesca Leah Block. And I'll make sure to link this in the show notes. But she loved all of Francesca Leah Block's books when she was growing up. And she talks about how um, her memories of these books might even have been the thing that motivated her to move to LA. And like these books have just been really influential for her. But then she reread all of them and she realized that throughout 
Francesca Leah Block's like entire catalog, there's what she describes as a fetishization of anorexia. And she includes a couple of excerpts in the essay. Again, you can refer to those listeners if you want to check it out. But she reflects on her experience moving to LA and like, when she moved to LA, it wasn't everything that Francesca Leah Block promised that it might be. Um, And she sort of ties that into this obsession with thinness that she found in the books. Like, there's so much buildup and so many like senses described and the world is described in such a rich way, but at the end of the day, it all feels very hollow. So I thought that was kind of an interesting reflection on um, the author's work as a whole. I haven't read enough of her work to be able to say that that's been my experience, but I agree that there's a lot of emphasis on smallness in this book. And it made me think a lot about the way we talk about like how much space women take up now. Like that's a phrase that I think we commonly use in like feminist discourse today. And and we all talk about wanting to take up more space. And in this book, we have two characters, Barbie and Mab, who are each trying to take up less space in different ways. Well, Mab would like to be taking up more space. Um, (laughs) Barbie is like very happy taking up as little space as possible, but Mab sort of just does take up very little space. Yeah. Well, it's like you're allowed to to want to take up more space as long as you are as tiny as you can conceivably be. And so if you want stardom, if you want attention, if you want sex, if you want to want those things, you have to be so tiny that no one can accuse you of being greedy for wanting more. It's really like even Barbie, who is a model and tiny, feels like, yeah, like she has to maybe shrink herself in some further way. And Mab can only occupy that desire for expansion by being too small to see. Yeah. Oh, that's that's hitting me in a very weird way. But yes, that's like <laughs> deeply upsetting. I mean, that feels just real. Like the idea yeah. of seeing like a, a very thin woman being really confident and right. desiring things and eating a burger. Like that's cool. That's sexy. But if you're fat and you want sex or you want a burger, then that is looked at so differently. And I think totally. this is just, yeah. Yeah, your desires are are too much. They're like mm-hmm. almost untoward. It's yeah. yeah. Okay, well, we have to, let's talk about like the second part because I'm getting very like into our deep reading of the first part of the book, but a lot happens in the second part too. And we are fast forwarding five years. Barbie is 16. Mab is still around when she wants to be. Sometimes she goes MIA, but she always comes back. And they make the acquaintance of these two guys, Todd and Griffin. And Todd is like this cool, like Hollywood type. He lives in an abandoned hotel that's of course been refurbished into a beautiful mansion and Griffin is his roommate and Barbie realizes early on that she recognizes Griffin and we didn't mention this in our conversation about the first half of the book but toward the end of that half Barbie reflects on observing a young boy walking out of Hamilton Waverly's photo studio and she sees in his eyes a look that she reflects is very familiar to her. Like his his facial expression is it resonates with her. And so she assumes that perhaps this boy has had a similar experience with Hamilton Waverly to her experience. And lo and behold, Griffin comes back into her life and she makes the connection that this is the same boy. But she's pursuing a relationship with Todd. And Griffin is like 
we, we talked about this a little bit with respect to Mab's um, horniness and like the fact that she's too small for anybody, any human man to have sex with or any human person to have sex with. But she is sort of like flitting around Griffin and they're having like kind of a weird romantic encounter that like I can't say I totally understood, but it's happening. It was better than sex. It was flying through a magical net woven by a fairy <laughs> through the night sky. That's I mean, sex. I don't know. That sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound maybe better than sex. I'm not sure. <laughs> I haven't had that experience, so it's hard to say. Um, yeah. But, yeah, but that is described as Mab's version of lovemaking <laughs> at that point in the book. I'm thrilled that that has been her experience with Griffin. Um, but Mab and Barbie are kind of having these parallel experiences as they're getting to know Todd and Griffin. And I, I wanted to get your take on Todd. Todd is a really interesting love interest for Barbie. And I thought he was like an interesting portrayal of masculinity too, because he has a, there's a couple of things going on with Todd. So he seems really cool, first of all. He has this caretaker complex. Like we hear a lot about how he takes care of his whole family. Obviously he lets his pal Griffin just like live with him in his mansion. And then he also has his entire body, it seems like covered in tattoos of women's names which felt very Francesca Leah Block, just kind of it's in its imagery. And I, I pulled out a quote about him that I feel like captures the point where I started to think about how Todd is representative of a particular brand of masculinity. It says, Todd felt privately that his calling in life was to kiss as many girls as possible and let even more watch him doing it so they could live vicariously through the ones on screen. It wasn't that he had such a huge ego. He really did feel that he had a certain healing effect. And this was, in fact, somewhat true. But until he'd met Barbie, he hadn't realized how his actions could become so hurtful as to cancel out any healing. He knew that it wasn't worth anything if it caused her to leave him like that. She had the sweetness and sadness and quirky talent of all his ex-lovers combined. That is quite oh. a quote. Mm -hmm. That moment also struck me in the book um, <laughs> because she is painting this picture of a certain kind of guy who has a great capacity to be very loving and very tender and who loves women and admires them. And he loves their little, you know, being able to paint their toenails with the brush between their teeth. And yet also by loving all of them, he hurts all of them. And then she just says it. She's like, anyway, here's the kind of guy he was. He yeah. he ha was giving his love away to everyone. And it was good love, except that he made them all feel like they weren't special. And so that hurt. And she just really ties a little bow on the kind of person Todd is at this point. Oh, yeah. You get a very clear picture. And that is a funny thing about reading it as an adult that you're like, oh, they're totally men like that that move through <laughs> yeah. the world with this self-deception of my capacity for giving is so great that like who could fault me for just right. needing to give it to everyone it would be stingy to give it to just one woman when so many women need it you know they could benefit from it <laughs> yeah i mean the world needs more of what todd has clearly <laughs> but his seeming like benevolence even early on is complicated by Ashley who like even when I thought he seemed like potentially a good guy Ashley who is sort of Barbie's rival in the modeling world or at least perceives herself that way like I got the sense that that they weren't necessarily playing on the same plane in the industry um Ashley keeps showing up and implying that like she is with Todd and so Barbie is stepping on some sort of territory so I got the distinct impression that Todd is a fuck boy 
And then he showed us his tattoos. And I was like, oh, he's definitely a fuck boy. But also Francesca Leah Block is like telling me these stories of his childhood where he is like so loving and caring and takes care of everybody. And I just, I still think he's a fuck boy. I mean, maybe a reformed one. Definitely a fuck boy. Maybe reformed in the end. Throughout this book, she's psychologizing everyone. And, you know, I think we get actually almost in a certain sense, a clearer portrait of some of the minor characters, because those are the ones that she takes a step away to devote just like three paragraphs to being like, here's Todd's whole deal. Yeah. And that's why he is the (laughs) way he is. And it's good in certain ways, but also it creates problems and hopefully he can like overcome that. We even see her do that with Hamilton Waverly to kind of step away and be like, here's why this horrible monstrous child molester is the way he is. And so I think that what she's trying to do is create this vision of how everyone is acting out of their pain and trauma. And, you know, that doesn't, that's not an excuse, but it just gives us a clearer image of, for example, Todd and how he's a fuck boy because of how he, grew up like the child of hippies like free love like just wanting to to spread good vibes all around (laughs) todd good vibes only i want to talk more about that hamilton waverly moment that you just brought up claire um it was one of the things that i was most anxious to talk with you about in this conversation because francesca leah block does devote several paragraphs to Hamilton Waverly's kind of like, I don't know if like his journey to behaving the way he does and like how when he started as a photographer, he like wanted to soothe the children that he was photographing. And, and of course, I don't need to go into further detail. I think people can kind of fill in the blanks as to like what he how he interprets that and why it becomes predatory. But I I have mixed feelings about this moment because I think like I put my writer hat on and I'm like, oh, it is a challenge like as a storyteller to get into that mindset. And I love empathy. I think it's really challenging to create unlikable characters and then make them empathetic. And the best authors do that really well. And I do think Francesca Leah Block is a fantastic author. At the same time, I'm not sure that I feel comfortable being put in a position where I am expected even a little bit to feel empathy for this person. And I really am not sure that I feel comfortable if I put myself in the mindset of like my 10-year-old self reading this book, where I am then expected to feel that empathy. I have a lot of complicated feelings about it. Yeah, I had similar thoughts as I was reading it. I mean, as a big fan of of Lolita, I believe very strongly in the power of of art to help us like understand things that we cannot ever accept or condone and right. to go inside the minds of people who are doing that. However, <laughs> it does seem like a a 10 or, or 11-year-old reading a passage like And then the longing began to tear at him like a wild creature in the cage of his body and things happened before he could stop himself. You know, it's almost Mm -hmm. like you are, you are giving children the language to say like, it's not his fault. He's not in control. He's not really doing it. It's just happening. And that is what he would say, of course, but it is being presented as an explanation through a third person narrator. And so like, it does kind of hit a little off to me as well. 
at points. Yeah. Especially because we then find out that he has, there's an, like an implication that he's been victimized by his stepfather, that perhaps he was the victim of assault when he was a child. And I think that like, we know that that is often true. Like there, there are cycles often to trauma and to abuse, but I just, the way it was presented, I it felt like way, a yeah, excuse. It comes, yeah. It comes so quickly. And I think that I also have mixed feelings because I enjoy the the exercise of not painting this character as completely one-dimensional monster. Like I think that yes. can be instructive and useful. But dipping in and out of his head so quickly and in this way that sort of takes away his own agency in his actions, that I think that's the part that lands poorly for me. Like, the things just happened. Like, yes, again, that is what he might say to himself to self-soothe. But that's not really interrogated at all by the book. And so it does sort of read as like, well, yeah, he just – it just happened. And isn't that a sad story too? Right. Yeah. And I think that happens at various points with these other characters that – Yeah, when you dip inside the head for just a brief moment, you get a snapshot of maybe some of the backstory, but it can still be quite confusing what we're supposed to take from that or what the full story is. I mean, not to go back to Todd, but we're supposed to sort of believe, I guess, that the moment where he realizes that he could hurt women by loving them happens all at once in this moment with Barbie and that this cures him and that feels psychologically unrealistic. I craved more understanding of how he stopped being the guy because it seems more like he's in the phase of the relationship where he would tattoo Barbie forever on his chest. And that's happened to him many times before. So why is this different? It's hard to buy it just based on the little taste that we get. It also frustrates me that we have this character of Todd who like the the implication is almost that Barbie is so magical beyond her own comprehension and so wonderful that finally she by virtue of being so desirable even though she doesn't even consider herself that um has the ability to to make him have this revelation and i was thinking about what that idea would do to a young girl reading it and how that might have warmed its way into my brain. And like, what if you are someone who who doesn't just walk around the world with everyone telling you how desirable you are? Like, that was not like the site of my trauma as a child. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and it, but it is like a staple of YA and oh, yeah. fiction for young women. Yeah. I mean, it's the Twilight Saga. It's like, mm-hmm. you might think that your nose is too small and your mouth is too lush and your eyes are too round and your, t- your legs are too skinny. But like, actually, a very handsome man thinks that you are so desirable and perfect that you know, there's no denying that you're just the most fascinating woman alive. And like that is, this is such a forerunner to Twilight in that sense. But I think it's like endemic to a lot of fairy tales as well. Like the whole tradition of Western storytelling that we like push on young girls. It's so bound up in that. Yeah, your beauty, which you can't even begin to understand, makes you so much more powerful, especially with men than you can possibly imagine. Uh, is certainly sort of under the surface throughout this book as she gets to know Todd. Yeah. And then you go through your life, you read these things waiting 
to have that moment where you have it proven to you that even though you didn't think you were that pretty, you actually are the prettiest, prettiest girl yeah, in the I'm, world. I'm still waiting. Still okay. Waiting. Very rude. Yeah. So this actually, this book is now in retroactively creating my childhood trauma. My son's <laughs> narrative. What an excellent exercise this has been for you, Claire. <laughs> Thrilled for you. Um, so there is like a really excellent moment toward the end of the book. I mean, there are many, like there's a lot about this book that I enjoyed, but there's a passage that I just have to read word for word. And I have a feeling that maybe you know what I'm going to read. So Barbie does get a chance to to sort of make right or to try to make right what's happened to her. She sees that um, Hamilton Waverly has taken another young child into his studio after reconnecting with him at a photo shoot. And she decides that she's had enough. Um, she realizes that her mom turned a blind eye to what had happened to her, and she doesn't want to be that kind of person. And so she has Mab help her, um, and they go to Hamilton's studio, and they successfully alert this boy's parents to what's going on. And there's a paragraph that reads, Barbie and Mab did not resemble your typical superheroes. Both were too small. One was unusually small. Possibly if she had pursued it and gotten breast implants, the taller one might have had the chance to be a supermodel. The other had supernatural wings. Otherwise, there's nothing particularly super about either of them. But together, they were heroes. It's like the it's like the more fleshed out version of not all heroes wear capes. Yeah, not all heroes have the breast implants that they would need <laughs> to have if they wanted to become supermodels. But nevertheless, <laughs> something quite superheroic about them. I also highlighted that passage because <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, yeah, it's like not all superheroes wear capes. And then you're like, wait, why are we talking about breast implants? Right. Like, <laughs> where is this going? Yeah. There's a lot of talk about Barbie's boobs, both the Barbie of the book and then the Barbie dolls for which she's named. Um, so yeah, I guess we had to bring that into what's meant to be a super empowering paragraph because we cannot forget <laughs> the Barbie boobs. Yeah, we can't forget that Barbie's boobs are just like, you know, they're not quite there if she wants to be like Iman, you know, that right. she's going to have to get some work done. And that's right. what I'm thinking about as she saves a little boy from being molested. <laughs> yeah, her boobs might be okay if she wants to like, you know, really make some social change, but not <laughs> if she wants to go back to her supermodel career. Exactly. Not to be on a billboard, as we've learned. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so I do think like we end the book on a pretty hopeful note. Barbie reinvents herself. She changes her name. Todd changes his tattoos so that they, his heart visually beats only for Barbie. We can see that now in his ink. And it seems that she has developed like a pretty healthy relationship with herself, with her body, with her sexuality. And that feels like a nice way to end this book that really took me on more of an emotional ride than I expected. Emma, on the whole, how do you think the experience of coming back to this book compared to your memories of it? Oh, gosh. It was a mixed bag. There were things yeah. that really bothered me about it that I had never picked up on. But I think on the whole, I was able to sort of tap into the magic that I felt reading this language for the first time as a young teenager. And I just – I will forever be obsessed with the passage where she talks about New York as a woman who's like lighting candles in her apartment and trying out the newest deep 
orange shade of MAC lipstick. And like, I think that there are things about the personification of cities and cityscapes in this book that still ring so true to me and still kind of tap into the magic that that I feel about getting to live a professional life in a place that I always wanted to be. And I think that's why I love that it it ends like Barbie's big triumph at the end of the book is actually a professional one. Mm-hmm. And I really I really enjoyed coming back to that. Yeah. There's something about the way that the cities are written about that is really about letting you know, like, if you want to be this kind of woman, here's where you need to go. If you want to be a woman who's rushing through the streets with her arms full of bouquets of flowers and groceries and wearing designer heels and your hair is like red, maybe, I don't know. Um, You know, that's New York. And if you want to be on a billboard and like looking, you know, sexed up and (laughs) that's LA. And so that's like a way of like, yeah, like letting girls know, like, that the world has all these different op- like options of the kind of woman they can be. And, and one of those things is to be an artist and to become the author of a story. And she ends up taking photographs of Mab and publishing them in a book called I Was a Teenage Fairy, which is the point at which that actually made sense to me because yeah. I was like, what is the title of this book? Yeah. Um, and it's successful. And she's Selena Moon now. And So we do get that glimpse of her as a person who feels like a whole person with desires and ideas of her own. And that was the best part of of the conclusion for me and and not Todd's tattoo, although it was very noteworthy. It's like conveniently she picked a name where if you block out certain letters from his past girlfriends, you can spell Selena out of his ex-girlfriends. Yeah, he's really lucky, frankly. It could have been far more challenging of a cover up, but he got (laughs) got off easy there. I know. Yeah, I, I must have been very painful. Reading though. it again, I was like, I could do without Todd. Like she could have just been mm. like on her own, and I think it would have been just as satisfying. Yeah. Although as a twelve-year-old, I was really invested in romance and sex and books, and that was something that kept kind yeah. of taking me aback. I was like, Barbie is literally like sixteen years old, and she's having sex with this guy while her friend is like hanging around. And that's shocking to me. 12-year-olds mm-hmm. are reading this. But when I was 12, what was I reading about? I was reading about fantastical warrior queens, like, who are 16 years old, like, having sex with <laughs> other warrior, you know, kings. And that's what your, I, I mean, your hormones are raging. Kids that age are really interested in stuff like that. So I think it is, you know. There's this, and literature is just a, a safe way to explore those desires and those ideas before maybe you're ready to, like, enact those things physically. And yes, as a 12, 13 year old, I would have been pissed had Barbie (laughs) not ended up with Todd. But as an adult, oh, she's just a cool single authoress. Why can't she have also a hot boyfriend (laughs) with her name tattooed on his chest? Boyfriend. He's like, just like a cool Hollywood type. And he loves her and he's reformed. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And she fixed it. Yeah. One other point in Todd's favor that I'll mention quickly before we wrap this up. But I will say early on in the book, there was a scene where he modeled consent in a really refreshing way that I starred all over the place in one of their like earliest physical encounters. Like we see him repeatedly asking Barbie, like, is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? And I don't think that's something that we were seeing a lot of at the time when this book was published. So I want to make sure we call that out because you don't often see that on the page. Um, And as fuckboyish as Todd was, 
that was very lovely of him and important for young readers to see, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that it shows like that the central concern of this book really is consent and sexual abuse and violation because that is what Todd had to be for her. He didn't have to be perfect, but he had to be someone who could demonstrate that he wasn't like a Hamilton Waverly, that mm-hmm. he was concerned with whether she wanted what was happening. And and that was one of the best, one of the healthiest messages, I think. Yeah, I agree. Other than I Was a Teenage Fairy, what have you been reading that you might recommend to our listeners? Claire, how about you go first? My son has been like home from daycare for like the last month. So not that much. I'm trying to like remember what I've been reading. True story. Oh, yeah. No. So I've been reading. I just finished a book about reality TV from like a sociological perspective called True Story by Daniel Lindman. And it's coming out next month. I think I got an advanced copy, but it's fascinating as a reality TV fan. I've also been trying to read Colson Whitehead's Harlem Shuffle for like a while, but it's been hard to get much reading time during Omicron with my son at home. So that's that one's taking a while to chip away at, but it's really great. And I love Colson Whitehead. His uh, his characters are so fully fleshed out and his worlds are so like evocative and interesting. So what about you, Emma? Um, I'm also reading True Story right now because we are we are going to do a podcast about it. Um, and then I also just been really craving some sweet fiction to kind of soothe me. And uh, so I just finished Alison Rose Greenberg's debut novel, Bad Luck Bridesmaid. And it was just really like a really fun and satisfying read. And sometimes you just, you know, you just need something that feels good and and easy. Yeah, I think that's what we all need right now. I did add True Story to my reading list after I saw, I think maybe Claire, you posted about it on your Instagram. Um, But as a reality TV fan, I was like, I really need to read this when it comes out. Speaking of which, um, I would love for you to chat a little bit about your podcast. Love to see it. I think I've I've probably creepily DM'd this to each of you individually or posted about it. But at this point, um, I'm mostly watching the Bachelor franchise so that I can tune into podcasts like yours because I just value your commentary so much, and I feel like you're my friend, so I listen to every week. Um, so. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit more about Love to See It for those who don't know what you're up to and also your newsletter, anything else you want to plug? Yeah. So we used to do a podcast that recapped the Bachelor shows uh, called Here to Make Friends, and we relaunched it in June of 2021 as Love to See It with Claire and Emma, or I'm sorry, I think it's Love to See It with Emma and Claire. We need to standardize that. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So uh, this is, it's now a weekly show and because there has been nonstop Bachelor content, almost every week we are recapping an episode of a Bachelor franchise show. And then we have frequent bonus episodes about other dating reality shows. We did F-Boy Island last summer um, and also bonus episodes that are about Bachelor news and gossip and uh, other fun Bachelor adjacent topics uh, and getting to kind of explore the world of reality dating more and we often have fun guests on to recap with us so we really uh we really get into 
the misogyny and racism and all the isms of the franchise while also making a lot of jokes and having a lot of fun. So that's our main our main uh, podcast project right now. But we do have another one. Emma, would you like to talk about Rich Text? Yes. So we have a second podcast slash uh, newsletter. Yeah, it is both written and and audio, but has become uh, primarily an audio project, actually. And on Rich Text, we do a lot of talking about things that are currently in the cultural zeitgeist, which includes a lot of scripted television. You know, we just put out an episode about yellow jackets, as well as looking back at some enduring cultural products like Sex in the City uh, and sometimes the nanny. talking and the nanny, and sometimes talking about things that are not TV related, like bad art friend. Um, and we have a lot of fun. It's a subscription based model, and uh, yeah, come come hang out with us as a free or paid subscriber, and you can find that at claireandemma.substack.com. Yes, I will include links to all of the cool things that you're up to in the show notes for this episode, along with links to the books you recommended. I am a huge fan of both of you, and I so appreciate you taking the time to read this book and to come talk about it with me. It's just been so fun hanging out with you today, so thank you. The fangirling is mutual. We're so grateful. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. This has been so fun as always. Thank you. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.